Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Jacqueline Masters, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 74, where we're talking about An American Sunrise by Joy Harjo and Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, edited by Dr. Anita Heiss. And you can find a complete transcript and list of all of the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Yeah, so like last time, we would like to first acknowledge the land on which we are. Uh, And so we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, uh, the Catawba Nation, the Cherokee Nation, the Sana Nation, and the Atacapa Ishiak Nation, and pay respect to elders past and present. And in my case, I'm acknowledging the land that I lived on while I was in Australia, and I wish to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of that land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. So today we have our discussion episode, and I feel like with both of the books that we've chosen today, there's just so much to talk about. Yeah, I think we chose really well. (laughs) Not biased at all. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, with your anthology, Growing Up Aboriginal, um, we thought we could talk a little bit about um, Aboriginal people in Australia and some of the terminology and and background of that, because as an American, I I hadn't heard any of this history or terminology before reading the anthology and talking with you about it. Yeah, and to be honest, there'll be a lot of Australians that haven't heard it because it's it's not a history that I was taught very well at school. Um, I think I mentioned before, I think the first time that I was learning about Indigenous history was when I was at university and it was a subject that I'd chosen to study. So I think no matter where you're at with your understanding of Australian history, I think this collection has something to teach everyone. So one of the things that I became aware of when I was reading this was I read it in July, which in Australia is Black History Month. So it works a lot like Black History Month in February in the US, if you have ever followed that. Um, It's really a celebration and showcasing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, heritage and cultures. And it's acknowledging and celebrating first Australians' achievements and contributions. Um, So the spelling of black as well, I should note, it's B-L-A-K, so they drop off the C. So the way it's described on a website celebrating Black History Month is that the re-spelling of that name without the C in it is about empowering um, the part of the community that um, uses the word to identify. So it's a, a way to reclaim possession of a word that hasn't always meant the most positive things for people. And I think you can definitely see that in action in the anthology, um, growing up Aboriginal in Australia, when they talk about being called these derogatory things and how that made them feel and how accepting their Aboriginal heritage and embracing that and celebrating that really just changed how they saw themselves. And I feel like you can see that enacted and in a story-like format. So for me, as an American who wasn't familiar with this, I was like, oh, okay, it now makes sense now that I've read dozens of these people's stories and it just, it just really fit. I feel like it's just you know, also a recommendation you know, for people to go read that because it is a diff- definitely a different experience than here in America. But I think it's, a, it's important for us here in America to also understand that around the world, people are celebrating their own identities in different ways. Yeah. And I think a lot of the essays do speak to how words have not been used in a positive sense and how that's affected the individual person's ability to connect to their own identity as an Aboriginal person. And seeing the contributors to this collection 
reclaim the use of those words in a way that positively affirms how they do connect to their identity is um, a really powerful way that language is used in this collection. So we'll be talking a little bit about that in a second, but we also wanted to touch on the kind of news. I guess it's kind of old news at this point, but we're still all very excited about it, that Joy Hardro, who is the writer of our second discussion book, is our new poet laureate here in the United States. And I was reading up on her and... Uh, well, this article in Smithsonian says seeing Joy Harjo perform live is a tr- transformational experience, and Joy Harjo loves the saxophone, and that's actually part of her collection. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. She loves playing or listening? Uh, both. Uh, oh. She loves the saxophone. That's a part of the collection, and also in her author photo in the back of the collection, she's with her saxophone. Oh, she is too. Which is pretty cool. And so she talks a lot about in this article, which I will link in our show notes, about her experience writing An American Sunrise, which is the collection we're talking about today, and her perspective on on writing that. And there's this quote that the writer uses to close out the piece, and it says, um, Harjo's wisdom teaches that poetry and music are inseparable, and she acknowledges poetry and act activism also have a kinship and it says quote that joy harder says a poem a real poem will stir the heart and break through to make an opening for justice and i and i feel like that is a great introduction to joy harjo and uh, her mission as a poet laureate and how she uses an american sunrise in a lot of different ways to kind of make an opening for justice and illustrate how america as a nation has mistreated um, the native nations that were originally here and, and what that has meant for them and for her as a person who is part of the muskegee creek nation and uh, it's a beautiful collection, so we're very excited to talk about both of these, uh, this anthology collection and this poetry collection today. Jacqueline, should we start with uh, Growing Up in Australia? Yeah, so Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia is edited by Dr. Anita Heiss. And before I talk about the collection, it's probably just worth noting that there are three or four other of these Growing Up in Australia titles available at the moment. So there is a title... Growing Up Asian in Australia, Growing Up Muslim in Australia, Growing Up African in Australia, and the newest release in the last few weeks in Australia has been Growing Up Queer. I understand there's also a Growing Up Disabled in Australia anthology coming out soon too. So I think it's really wonderful that there are these really focused collections looking at how different people have found growing up in Australia specifically for them. So this was no exception. This was a really wonderful anthology. And I think in the introduction, Dr. Heiss talks about how there were something like 120 original submissions. And I think there's about 50 that get covered in this book. So, I mean, there's a lot of perspectives. And one of the things we mentioned on our last episode was that they come from all geographic places across Australia, different Indigenous nation groups. So you're getting a very diverse range of voices in terms of age different nations, different life experiences, professions. You know, what I really enjoyed was that there were, you know, ordinary people, there were opera singers, there were writers, there were professional sports players. There were so many different people that um, added to this collection and really just contributed their voice. And one of the things I should mention as well is Kendra and I both listened to this one as an audiobook. And the audiobook is narrated by six actors and they do such a great job, they make each of the essays sound like a, like the individual contributor is reading them. So 
I thought that was a really unique um, feature of the audiobook. So some of the common themes that come up in the essay, because I think it's hard to sort of talk about this book when there's so many different um, contributions, but I guess one of the ways that I started thinking about as I was going through are what are some of the common themes that are coming up around this search for identity and how do some of these commonalities start to speak to issues like how people have been impacted by the stolen generations, uh, you know, in different senses of inherited and intergenerational traumas from having their family members who were removed or from being removed as children themselves. So as an American, I'd never heard of the stolen generation before. So would you explain that for our listeners who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, so the stolen generations refers to this forcible removal by institutions that were the government in Australia where Indigenous children were removed and placed into missions or other homes. Um, but yeah, essentially removed from their family. And the trauma that that had is something that is so well explored in the collection, both in a very literal sense, people recounting their experiences of their parents being removed or them being removed or searching for family members that they couldn't keep track of because they had been impacted. I think for readers that aren't familiar with that term, I think this collection does a really great job of helping you understand that in more than just an abstract historical sense. And it really personalises something that um, for so long history is written written out of the history books. There were so many different perspectives on it, how a lot of the stories in this anthology of these people writing the essays about their family and their history as an Aboriginal person, a lot of them were, we didn't know we were Aboriginal until we finally traced back our family, and how the stolen generation really is also stealing these people's heritages, because a lot of them don't know what nations that their families belong to because they were stolen, and that is like a stolen history, mm. as it were, and, and they really explore that, and how that's been so detrimental to their knowledge of themselves as a person and how that really affected their lives. And there wasn't just one story. There were dozens of stories like this and how it had such a great impact. Mm. And, I, and I think it's important that we remember this, that, you know, that we remember that this happened. And I think that's why these people are also telling their stories is that one, they're speaking up as Aboriginal people, but also reminding like, hey, this is what happened. We shouldn't forget so this mm. doesn't happen again. Yeah, and I think it did a, the collection did a really good job both in individual pieces but also collectively to give people reading it that maybe haven't experienced it or haven't lived in Australia and experienced Australian society. Interesting snapshots at different points too because the contributors are all different ages. So I think you see in many ways how things change over time but then also how some things don't. Um, particularly when it comes to racism and that institutionalised um, and inherited trauma that um, people people suffered. Yeah. I think there's also another theme of feeling Aboriginal enough and how there are a lot of people who are Aboriginal, but maybe you know one parent was an Aboriginal or maybe they have a grandparent who was Aboriginal and, and just the idea of being ab Aboriginal enough. And there's a beautiful moment in one of the essays where this girl feels such conflict in trying to come to terms with her Aboriginal identity. And her dad, who is Aboriginal, takes a cup of coffee and he says, what is this? And she's like, it's a cup of coffee. And then he pours milk into it. And he says, now what is this? She's like, it's 
a cup of coffee? And he's like, yes, this will always be a cup of coffee, no matter how much milk you pour into it. And she, and he says, you are Aboriginal. And it was just a big moment for her. And she talks about that in the essay. And it was such a beautiful illustration of a lot of the writer's journey in this anthology and, and coming to terms with their identity and, and just exploring that. And I don't, it just stuck in my mind because it was just so well-written and important for a lot of the voices in this anthology. And it's so embracing of having an identity that you can outwardly identify with and say that you are Aboriginal. Um, so many of the essays spoke about how you know the person felt like they couldn't um, identify a certain way because they, they, you know, their skin color was different, or they just didn't know enough about their family history to identify in a particular nation, or things like that. So you really start to see the personal impact that the stolen generations and racism and all of these sorts of issues have on everyday lives. And I think the fact that that keeps happening time and time again in each of these essays really hammers the point home to the reader and just cumulatively makes it so effective to read. Yeah. Just how repeated the theme of of being Aboriginal enough is throughout the entire anthology made a huge impact on, you know, the reading experience. There was one collection of a guy and as a boy, he would say, you know, I'm half Aboriginal and his family, Aboriginal family is like, no, you're Aboriginal. You're also Irish. Mm. And how you're not half Aboriginal. You're Aboriginal, cementing that in his mind for him and how the families, you know, discuss with, you know, the children who are trying to come to terms with their identity was also a big deal. And reading one essay on this on their own would be incredibly impactful. But this chorus of voices kind of repeating these themes just emphasizes that into your reader's mind that we are Aboriginal people. We come in all different shapes and sizes and colors and sexualities and classes, but we are all Aboriginal people. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that was really effective um, in doing that was that discussion about language and the way that language has been misused through history as a way to sort of separate people or make them feel lesser because they're not a whole of something or they're only part of something. And I feel like a lot of the essays in the collection really spoke to reclaiming that and just being like, no, and I'm Aboriginal. There's nothing that I need to qualify that with. And I thought that was really powerful. So that was Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, edited by Dr. Anita Hyas, and that's out from Black Ink. And we'll be back to discuss our second discussion pick, An American Sunrise, after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is The Newsworthy. The Newsworthy is a great daily podcast that helps you stay up to date with everything you need to know in less than 10 minutes. Unlike many news sources out there that can leave you feeling depressed, The Newsworthy is fast, fair, and fun. Named by Salon as an essential current events podcast, The Newsworthy keeps you well-rounded and up-to-date on a wide variety of stories, from politics to tech to entertainment and everything in between, all in less than 10 minutes each weekday. It's a casual, concise-style podcast that helps listeners save time and energy so that way they can focus on things that matter the most to them. Plus, it always features multiple perspectives so you can get a better understanding of what's going on in the news. Thanks so much to The Newsworthy for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women and check out all of their information in our show notes. So Kendra, did you want to talk about our second discussion pick? 
Yes. So our second discussion pick is An American Sunrise, Poems by Joy Harjo. And this is out from W.W. Norton. And I picked this collection in particular because I'd never read Joy Harjo before. And she was just named our Poet Laureate here in the United States. And I thought this would be an opportune time. And so I was looking forward to reading this collection. And so I took it with me on a trip recently. And I opened it up. And I wanted to read one of the lines um, in the first poem which is Break My Heart. And at the very end of this poem, it says, History will always find you and wrap you in its thousand arms. And I feel like that is such a concrete image for an abstract subject of history. Mm. And that's really a theme that runs through this collection is an American sunrise, is history and how it relates to Native peoples in the context of of Joy Harjo's family. And uh, Joy Harjo is a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And she talks a lot about her family's experience and her early memories of living, you know, with her family and just a lot of the the laws and the history that the American government has had with her particular Native nation. And I found that incredibly informative, but also appreciated her sharing her own experience, especially since she also gives a historical context to a lot of her poems by talking about different laws that came into being, such as in 1978, Native American people were for the first time allowed to practice their own spiritual traditions and, and religion in, in that way and in in the cultural parts of their identity, which were illegal until that point. So she's able to use all of these different things in poetry to communicate her experience as you know a, a woman from the Muscogee Creek Nation. Yeah, and I feel like that date isn't that far back in time either. And you know, to contextualize that historical moment with her own personal take and what that's meant for her, I thought that was a really apt comparison and just it read really powerfully. Yes. And uh, throughout the poem, she travels back to the traditional lands of her ancestors in, in Alabama. And she also has this poem about washing her mother's body and how this practice was something they were not allowed to do for, for so long. And it was such a, such a vital part of her culture. Uh, and, and just talking a lot of different facets about her culture as an, a Native person and, and those experiences in poetry. And so we talked a little bit about last time, but this would be a great poetry collection if you were studying this time period in history to go with that because it does talk a lot about the history of her people and what that was like for her grandparents and for her parents. So I think just one of the things you mentioned before, Kendra, about the story about her washing her her mother, I think one of the things that I remembered was one of the, I think it was one of the historical stories that she was recounting where she talks about a horse, quote unquote, theft. And she was talking about the way that it was, it's been written in history as this theft, but that it really wasn't the case because the, the alleged incident occurred on stolen land. So the idea that someone could be using their own livestock that you know it's just not possible that it can be stolen on that in that sense so I thought it was interesting the way that she used language and interrogated the way that language has been used throughout history to convey that I thought that was really powerful and she she actually expressly uses the, the expression trade language um, and saying that there's no words with enough power to hold all this we have become and I thought that was really interesting because it's something that I know I've read in a lot of other Indigenous collections that look at the way that language is used as almost this oppressive colonial force in itself, um, in the way that it's 
that history is written. Um, so I think that she tackles this head on in the way that language is used and how she chooses to use it in her poetry um, was really effective for me. Sometimes people will say, what's the big deal about language? You know, it's just a word. Why get technical? Or, you know, being the know-it-all and correcting someone. But language, no, language is powerful. And I feel like we definitely need to be conscious of this language. And that's something that she reinforces, like you said, how language is used and how it seems like not a big deal or it's very subtle, but actually, you know, it's very powerful. And I I also underlined um, the line you just mentioned, and just the idea that no words with enough power to hold all this we have become. And it, it just makes you sit and think. She She's able to write these lines or two lines. And you just sit and you think about what she just said. It's like you're ruminating over something. And I keep thinking about how when we were taught literary criticism about the cow chewing the cud, you, you just keep thinking about those same words. And the more you think about and ruminate on them, the more complex you realize they are. And that really is Joy Harjo's poetry collection is the more you think about these words in the language, the more you realize how complex they are. And how much depth she has in so few words as well. I think that's probably something that I I certainly took when I read the whole collection. I just felt like she says so much in such a short space of words. And we talked about uh, the poem Washing My Mother's Body, and I wanted to read this section on 20, page 29. And and she talks a little bit about why she would be washing her mother's body. And so she kind of contextualizes poems, which I love because she knows her audience, one, but also she is saying this is why this is important and kind of giving us a reminder as readers. And she says... Until the passage of the Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, it was illegal for Native citizens to practice our cultures. This included the making and sharing of songs and stories. Songs and stories in one culture are poetry and prose in another. They are intrinsic to cultural sovereignty. To write or create as a Native person was essentially illegal. And the fact that she's writing this is illustrating that if it were another time, this poetry collection would have been illegal. It really makes you pause. Yeah. And and it follows that by the poem, Washing My Mother's Body. And the beginning starts out, I never got to wash my mother's body when she died or return to take care of her memory. That's how I make peace when things are left undone. I go back and open the door. I step in to make my ritual, to do what should have been done, where needs to be fixed so that my spirit can move on, so that the children and grandchildren are not caught in a knot of regret they do not understand. And so she continues this and she kind of like imagines like washing her body, her mother's body and all of these different things um, and, and just the practice of it and what it reminds her of and she's kind of like imagining herself ruminating on different things and um, to me it's it's one of the most powerful poems in the entire collection because of all that she accomplishes in this short amount of space while also illustrating what she had just talked about and contextualizing the poem that this practice was illegal for so long that people were not allowed to help their loved one's spirits come to rest and, and the, the spiritual practices and how they were important to a culture Um, and uniting a culture and just a lot of the different things that they weren't allowed to celebrate and practice. Yeah, especially because it comes straight after that paragraph, that historical excerpt too. I think that connection was really, really well drawn. 
so we've talked a little bit about how Joy Harjo uses history as kind of this narrative thread, and then we'll contextualize poems on what was going on at the time and how she's kind of reflecting on that and including that in the themes of her poetry. There's this one poem on page 61. It's called Bourbon and Blues, and it starts out, We were wild then, as we emerge from bloody history into the white clothes of pious religion and rules. They sent off to Indian schools to learn how to forget our mothers, fathers, and grandparents who loved and love us. We were still in the embrace of the god of the plains, horses of where sky and earth meet. Every day was a praise song, every word or act as important into meaning of why we were here as spirits dressed in colored earth. And that goes back to practicing, you know, your own culture and your own religious practices, not being able to do that. And here in America, we also had schools that Native children were taken to, and that is what part of what she's referring to, is that they were taught to abandon their own culture and assimilate, and how you know their own cultures were devalued, not only because they were one well, illegal, but also because they were taught they weren't as good as white culture, and how that affected her and her family. And in this poem, it continues to talk about the history of her people and the atrocities that they, they live through and, and coming out on the other side and, and being a Native person. I love that line. It's in that same poem, but it's the next stanza down where she says, and though they tried, they could not ever remake us, no matter how hard they drilled and forced us. We died over and over again in those stiff desks as our hearts walked home. I mean, that's amazing kind of prose and really connecting to that theme of erasure and trying to forcibly just eliminate a cultural history yeah the the emotion that she also communicates in the poems is just incredibly skillful in in how she does it and you know as we were preparing for this Jacqueline and I were talking about how many tabs we have and how many things that we have underlined um, because there is something on every page of this poetry collection and it's almost impossible to try to choose what to talk about because this is a poetry collection you really need to read and then reread and and study and I, I think it's going to be a very important poetry collection in the future I mean obviously George Harjo is already a very important poet but how impactful and layered this collection is I didn't know what to expect going into it because I'd never read her before she is so skillful. She is really a master poet at her craft, and I just don't have words. There really is no words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think looking at that that emotion you're talking about, Kendra, one of the things that I really liked reading was her balance between this weariness and feeling the weight of history, but also this simultaneous tenacity to persevere. And one of the early poems has this line I grow tired of the heartache of every small and large war passed from generation to generation but it is not in me to give up and I thought that that having that set the pace for so many of the other reflections that she draws on from her life and through history in the collection I just thought that was you could just feel the like the weight in the words um, and just how much was loaded into those like few words just very incredible. So I will link to that article that I was talking about in the Smithsonian so you all can go check out uh, more about Joy Harjo. But we absolutely love this collection and are just speechless by how beautiful and, and talented this is. Uh, so definitely go check out An American Sunrise by Joy Harjo, which is out now from W.W. W. Norton. 
And that's our show. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Uh, Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. And join us next time where Kendra and Samaya will be looking at multicultural stories for October's theme. And in the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me on Instagram at Six Minutes For Me. Thanks again for listening to Reading Women. Mm-hmm.